from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Monday, the 9th of October. I hope you had a fantastic weekend, maybe put up some Halloween decorations and had a little fun with the family. My eight-year-old has been insisting on some decorations, and so we've got some lights up for her, and I hope it's scary and, oh, dangerous and all that Halloween stuff. Anyway, we've got a great show for you today. We're starting off with finding out about raising some capital with Marcel Benz. It's a really impressive story, what he's doing at Emil Capital. And we'll talk about risk, of course, and all of the various pieces that we always get into when we talk about venture capital. After that, Jaquita Hall Jackson will be with us. Very, very interesting story. She had trouble getting into the programs academically that she wanted to. And so she sort of made her own path. And now she's hiring people from those very programs as the boss. Very successful diversity, equity, and inclusion attorney out of the Chicago area. And boy, she's got the revenge at the end. You know, now she is the one winning the awards. And a lot to learn from Jaquita's story. So appreciate her being with us. Great stuff coming up the rest of the week as well. We're going to talk a little bit about Airbnb. We're going to talk about SCORE, the incredible organization that can help you build your organization, your business completely for free. We're going to be talking a little bit about learning and development and the type programs that you can build for your staff. And we're going to meet a guy who takes 1000 foot ships apart. He build or runs ship demolition business out of Canada. And we're going to talk to one of the original people who got canceled. He was recorded in an elevator. He shushed the dog away with his foot. The dog was unhurt, but he ended up losing a million dollar a year job because of it and was one of the first people canceled. And so we will be talking about that this week. It's a cram-packed week with great information, all designed to do the same thing. Reinforce our thesis that anyone can be a successful entrepreneur when you forget about creativity, risk, or passion. Go find a business idea, copy, borrow, or steal it. Do it better than them. Of course, we're not going to break any laws and copy any trademarks, uh, copyrights, or patents, but you don't need to. You know, if you are seeing a successful business, copy it and do it where you live and you will be a successful entrepreneur. It is that simple. We try to bring in great guests to give you the tips, the tricks, the techniques to be successful, give you the information you need to motivate you to get off the sofa, to go out there and actually take your remote control, put it underneath a rock a hundred times, smash the daylights out of it, quit watching Sports Center and the Real Housewives and go make a million dollars. We'll be right back to get started. Thanks for being with us. Bye, bye, bye. 
if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage from concepts to exit jim accepts all connections on linkedin he tweets from at entrepreneur jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show we are back and again thank you so very much for being with us you know, it's all about the money, right? And you know what our view is on risk. I can't wait to ask our next guest that. Please welcome Marcel Benz to the show. He is the managing partner of Emil Capital. They call it uh, ECP, Emil Capital Partners. And so you will hear us refer to ECP as well. Prior to this, Marcel had a very successful career with one of the uh, largest German automobile manufacturing conglomerates. He worked for them in Germany, South Africa, and here in the States. He has also worked for a multi-billion dollar distressed private equity firm in New York City, but he is now with ECP. They are a very interesting VC firm. They are early stage and in the consumer brand space, mostly, we will ask how big they define consumer brands. But they have previously invested in companies like Uber and a whole basket of brands that look like consumer products. You know, some really cool things like Zelle and Bear and Wish Farmside, Kid Fresh. Milk and Honey is a brand that I've actually used. Marcel, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jim, for having me. All right. So let's start right there with consumer. How define consumer brands? Are these physical products? Uh, exactly who are you investing in? Yeah, we invest in uh, consumer-focused products and services. So anything that touches the end consumer. Um, and that could be in any category. We're category agnostic. Uh, we have a, a, a big set of food and beverage investments, uh, beauty, um, uh, uh, consumer technology. Uh, we've done some digital media uh, uh, and, you know, health and wellness overall uh, as well. So when we talk about consumer, it's really about anything that touches the end consumer. Fantastic. And are you... The first investor usually after the family and the fools, where do you come in in the cycle? Yeah, so we're early stage. I would say we are, uh, you know, right after friends and family uh, investors. We generally don't do seed investments, although we have done them in the in the past. Uh, we consider ourselves uh, early stage investors. Uh, usually we start at like a series A investment. Uh, and then we do always prefer to reinvest. Um, so we we uh, guide the companies throughout its life cycle. And, uh, you know, we're not just an investor that goes in once uh, early in and then never again, which a lot of investment firms do. We try to tag, you know, move along, uh, move along the series until until an exit. All right. And. What's your definition of the difference between seed and early? Does early mean we have revenue, we have profit? 
Uh, where yeah, are great question. Yeah, so great question. So again, uh, there are exceptions always to the rule, but I say generally we don't do seed, which is concept phase or pre-revenue. We we generally do not do pre-revenue. So for us, early stage is you have established some type of, uh, you know, you've established yourself in, in, a, in a market and that could be, uh, you know, that could be regional, um, uh, that could be as part of a, a product portfolio, um, but it, it would need to be uh, post, you know, uh, after you've uh, generated uh, a few million dollars at least of revenue. Uh, and then it depends, right? Then uh, we structure uh, we structure our investments in two pillars. One is really a, a, a Series A early stage pillar um, uh, that starts uh, at a few million dollars of run rate. Um, those are generally smaller check sizes that we invest, and then we have a uh, a larger a larger pillar uh, which we call a growth pillar. Those are companies, you know, uh, uh, plus. 15, 20 million of revenue. Uh, they have a clear, uh, a clear path to profitability. Uh, and uh, that's where we fund growth capital to take them to the next level. Marcel, I was watching Family Feud the other day, and the question that uh, Harvey, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, gosh, oh, the have, guy with the mustache. Uh, uh, yeah. The question that he asked uh, 100. Business owners with a million dollars in revenue, what is your business worth? And 57 of them said a hundred million. What do you think that a business with $1 million in revenue is worth? And let's divide it into two categories. Let's do basic consumer product, a beauty, a health food, and then do a tech thing. You know, us entrepreneurs, we think that our business is worth you know, a billion dollars easily because I read a book and we're, you know, it's pretty close to that story I saw on Nightline. So what's a, a million dollar revenue business with in the, some sort of physical product space worth that you're going to invest in? Well, I would, I would have to, I would have I to know, respond know, with a I counter know. question because it all depends in, in, in our world, or at least in, at a meal capital, we always think of, of retention, repeat purchases, right? Anybody can get to a million dollars in revenue. You can buy your own product, uh, uh, you know, if you wanted to, or tell all your friends that it's, but what's really important is the velocities, right? So how often does a consumer um, come back to the, you know, come back and buy your product. And that's why we're not, you know, we're not interested in broad distribution. And so if we see that this $1 million company uh, has a very strong, high velocity in a small, you know, in a small region, then the value would be, uh, would be much higher uh, than a company that uh, uh, loses its consumer after the first purchase, uh, obviously, then that's not a sustainable business. So sure. that obviously all depends on, on, on the underlying metrics. Um, uh, but, you know, in our world, it all is dependent on repeat purchases and velocity. All right. So give me some help here. Is it worth 1 million, 5 million, 15 or 50? It's got a good velocity. It's, you know, it's got all the metrics you want. It looks good. Uh, I would say it's probably anywhere between two and three. Two and what? Two and three million. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you so much. And then the same thing in a tech, you know, it's a, uh, an app that could go to a billion dollars in revenue. You know, it's got all of the potential. 
Um, what is a tech product that's doing a, a million in revenue, potentially, conceivably, possibly worth? Oh, that could be a billion dollars, right? But so could the one million dollar consumer product firm. Uh, you know, if it's a software, You're not if it's invest a software with a billion product. dollar valuation, are you? No, if exactly. Well, and you know, within tech, uh, it the speed uh, the speed of valuation growth is generally higher than. That's in why consumer. I separated it from consumer. Uh, exactly right. That's why you're asking the question. So, on a million dollars, if you know, if uh, if there's a, a lot of let's say velocity velocity in the tech, uh, you know, I'd give it a higher multiple. I would uh, at that point, uh, you know, probably value it between five and ten. At that point, okay. uh, maybe even maybe even higher. Um, okay. uh, but obviously that all depends on everything else around that. I think the number one thing that entrepreneurs get upset about when it comes to money is that they, they hear the story and they assume their business is just as cool as the story. And so yeah. they think that multipliers that you would give Coca-Cola or IBM or Facebook, you know, 20 or something like that. They think that's ridiculous. You know, they expect a billion dollar company. One of my favorite lines ever was Donald mm -hmm. Sutherland said that you give someone a hundred million dollars and they see themselves as the next billionaire. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, thank you for giving us those numbers as hard as it, it was. Uh, I, again, that's something I think us entrepreneurs need to hear more. I see. And I agree. I agree because, um, you know, I also think there's patience involved in these valuations. Everybody wants to hear that they're, you know, they're worth a million, a billion bucks. Um, but you know, start slow, slow and steady, right? The, the worst thing. And that's what you see in the market currently in the last uh, 18 months. Um, you know, you have billion dollar valuations that are then suddenly uh, worth a third, if at all. And that is far worse for any uh, any entrepreneur, any shareholder, um, uh, than you know starting slow and progressing to a higher valuation when justified. All right. Another part of your website that I drew my attention, and you mentioned it yourself. You said you like to guide the companies through their life, and that's one of the reasons you like to have a follow-on investment, right? And your mm -hmm. website talks about, uh, where is it? I'm a scrolling. I'm a scrolling is the partner mm -hmm. when you need it the most. And you not only offer the capital, but also help with strategic planning, marketing, sales, operations, retailer issues, finance, hiring and building mm -hmm. the team, et cetera. Talk to me about the idea of a partnership. There's a new book out from Jerry Newman. It's investors versus VCs, the honest truth. It's an interesting discussion. Uh, you may know Jerry. He's in the New York area. Uh, and he, you know, brings out the, the standard trope that the VC, mm -hmm. their first thing is to fire the founders, get rid of those morons, take over the board and run it themselves. Damn it. <laughs> you know? So yeah. comment on the whole, your philosophy on this, et cetera. Go. 
Yeah, so we, I mean, we believe in founder-led teams. Uh, again, this is uh, this is early stage investments, either, you know, even in growth capital. Does that mean it always works out? Does that mean the founder is always going to stay until the end? No, it doesn't. But we believe that uh, we are always more successful if a founder, an entrepreneur is still leading the team. Uh, and you know these are these are individuals with great ideas, with passion, with vision. But you know we all know we can't we can't do everything, and that's where we support uh, with everything on in every function. Uh, but we do believe in founder-led teams, and the simple reason is at an early stage, uh, it's about it's about the, the the grit that it takes to run a business, and you know having a founder be an employee of its of, you know his or her own company usually doesn't doesn't work out long term because they need to feel everybody wants to feel ownership everybody needs to feel the responsibility the great you know the greatness of responsibility and also the accountability right and uh, and having lots of skin in the game with your own business uh, 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 for everybody involved that's usually a good a good recipe for uh, a successful uh, successful outcome how does one become a venture capitalist what's the career path well, um, I think there are multiple weird ways. I mean, I I didn't have a straight line to uh, to to venture capital, uh, right? I I went from big corporate, uh, more operationally focused into uh, into corporate strategy M and A, and then uh, found my way into venture capital. I think uh, what is important, or you know, other people go through uh, learning the tools in investment banking, and then find their way in in venture capital or private equity. What I think is important, and what we do, is being off having operational experience. So having having been on the other side of the table, having worked uh, uh, and learned a, a specific skill within a small or medium or large corporate, but having been on the operating side, because it's always easy to sit on the investor or VC side of the table and give great advice. Um, the execution is always the, the, the difficulty, right? And if, uh, if you know more about how to execute or the difficulties about execution, you're going to be more successful. You're going to be more successful in building trust. And I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of building trust and building relationships and the softer skills of VC. So you need to have a emotional intelligence to connect with the founders uh, and build up a relationship so they don't call you uh, as an investor, only when things are good, they call you when there are challenges. And that's when you really know you've built up that trust. If you're the first call when something's gone bad and they seek for advice or just seek for somebody to listen um, uh, because things get tough. And the more experience you have on that side of the world, the more successful you are in a, uh, as a venture capitalist. So there's the standard bucket of things that are important when you invest and decide what to invest in. What do you think are the top two founders, honesty, the numbers, the velocity that you mentioned before, and how many people get to vote at ECP when it comes to an investment? Do you ever have votes where it's two to two or three to three and, or any situation where there's a serious disagreement on whether to invest or not. Um, so first part of the question, um, uh, uh, what's the top two, I would say ownership. So attitude of ownership, um, of, of really owning 
feeling ownership of 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 the company that uh, that that you founded, and that's for the entire management team. Um, uh, it's important to see that in the management team. It's important to see that uh, within the founder, and uh, you know, a good test is that management presentations to uh, to see who talks. If it's just the founder talking, or if the founder can also take a step back and let the management team talk and how do they talk about their own company do they feel that ownership or do they see themselves just as you know a, a an employee uh, so that's that's always a great check on management presentations um, and then of course the second part is the commercial side of it the you know again the velocities the margins of a product of a service um, does the does this is this a sustainable business that can uh, be profitable and grow sustainably uh, to a point that you could, you know, exit or or however else you uh, you choose the path of the company to to proceed. Um, uh, so that I would say are the top two, um, uh, 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 and then uh, help me help vote? me out again. How many? Oh, people how many vote people vote? Oh, yeah, the two-two. That's right. Yeah, uh, of course we have conflict. I mean, there's two uh, within our firm. We you know, obviously go through multiple rounds of discussions. Uh, uh, so there are plenty of companies that uh, obviously fall out right in the beginning, um, um, as I uh, as I mentioned previously. And then, uh, and then there is discussion. There's rounds of discussions. It's not, I would say, in the end, a democracy because we do have an investment committee and uh, the investment committee ultimately decides, are we going to invest or not? But Usually, and I would say 99% of the time, a investment opportunity does not make it to the investment committee and is then shut down, right? So they always make it through because of successive rounds of discussions. And so there's very frequently uh, two and two. And then we all try to... Uh, to see, you know, uh, how can we solve this, and 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 who, you know, what are the reasons why people are against it or for it? Uh, consensus is never a good thing in investment opportunities. So everybody agrees this is a great thing. Uh, immediately, there's something wrong. So then we always try to go back and do another round and and kind of think about why do we all agree? Uh, there has to be something, you know not good here or there has to be some yellow flags um and then uh, we try to do more diligence to figure that out um at least that's our philosophy and where do the yellow flags red flags come from most operations personnel finance marketing market size where do where does the the hiccup most frequently come from yeah, so in the consumer product space, it's mostly margins and capital profitability. Uh, that would be the big uh, concern that that we very often see, where we just don't think it's it's sustainable to move that forward with small early stage companies. Um, you know, as I said, it could also be the management team that we don't believe this is a founder that we we want to back that. Uh, uh, so then that that fails but when it's a when it's a product it most often in the early stages of us looking into it uh, uh falls through through you know margins and uh, uh and profitability um and then you know the third one i would say after that after a quick glimpse is when we dive into the addressable market so market size uh then we have to be sure can this 
product or services be at least $100 million. That's kind of our threshold where we like to uh, like to talk about, like, do we believe that in the next few years uh, over our investment horizon, <coughs> it can get to $100 million. And are you usually, I got to think that there's fewer IPOs than, again, the Family Feud answer board would suggest. Are you looking for more mergers or acquisitions? And then do you help? Uh, will you do that? Will you look at a company in year four and start looking around for who could buy them out? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you, you, uh, I think, uh, interviewed <coughs> just recently, um, somebody who wrote a book about exit strategy, right? Exit, yes. exit, I think, I mean, very interesting, very interesting topic because that's exactly what we try to do. Um, before we invest, we define where do we see the exit play out? And yes, it could be an IPO, but that's very infrequent. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that's very infrequent because of the category we're in. Uh, the companies are, you know, 100 million, 150 uh, at exit, maybe, maybe larger, a few hundred million. So doing an IPO is uh, uh, in a consumer product space, not very, not very frequent. You have examples like an Oatly Beyond Meat, of course, uh, in that space that IPO'd. Um, now they, in the end, initially they were successful. Right now their valuations are struggling significantly, but where we see the most opportunity is strategic exits. So bigger, larger firms see value in the product and who see value in owning a specific consumer. That makes sense. Marcel, great information. And I think a lot of people are jealous. I think that many people want to be VC <coughs> and, uh, would love to do that. And so you're a rock. Well, it's hard, right? I, I don't disagree. I think this is a wonderful job. I can highly recommend it. Anybody going into the VC space or starting their own company. Um, you know, we're always looking for amazing founders and entrepreneurs to start new companies. That's what, uh, you know, that's what this country was built on. That's what the economy is built on. Um, so we should all, we should all start more companies and support, support small companies. Um, but it's like any, any other job, it's, it's very hard because you're not always going to be right. And that's, uh, you know, being a VC, you always have to understand that, you know, unfortunately you will not always uh, um, make the right decision. And that is also something that, you know, we bring value to because over a long period of time, you have seen, you know, the ins and outs, you know, what can go wrong. You've made those mistakes. And, you know, our biggest strength as an investment firm, as, as strange as it sometimes sounds to people outside of this world is, you know, the mistakes that we've made, uh, because, you know, we, we, we know not to repeat them again. Um, and uh, you know that didn't ha that didn't help us in, in 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 previous times, but going forward in new investments over time, it always does help us. And that's how I think uh, we've been successful, and that's how we're going to continue to be successful, is by learning from the mistakes and helping others not make the same mistake. Well, I'll have an idea for you in a year or two. I have a consumer play right now that I'm playing with, so. I'd love to hear about it. Uh, I'd love to hear about it. That's great. How do we find out more? Follow you online and send a proposal or a deck 
to be evaluated? Yeah, go on our website, you know, www.animalcapital.com and uh, send us a, there's a, there's a contact us button, send us an email with our deck. We're always, uh, we're always uh, there to respond and help out and listen to interesting pitches in the consumer space. Um, You know, we're, we're doing a lot of work in clean beauty. We're doing a lot of work in plant-based, plant-based proteins. We're focusing a lot on sustainable supply chains, uh, which you know, unbranded, but kind of one step removed uh, from from a branded product, but very, very relevant nowadays. Uh, we're looking, you know, we're, we're very heavy on functional nutrition on uh, uh, on the nootropics category um, and, you know, brain health, mindfulness, cognitive health. So any of those companies, we're, uh, we're, we're very much looking forward to hearing from everyone. Marcel, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. And... Uh, I hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you for having me, Jim. Love to come back. And send your portfolio companies our way as well. We'd love to have all your portfolio companies on to talk to. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah, there's some great founders who would would love to talk to you. I, I, I will pass that along. Thank you very much, Jim, for the offer. Introduce them all. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest. Please welcome Chiquita Hall Jackson. She is an attorney and the founding partner at a firm named after her. But most importantly, she's the creator of Blow the Whistle Law. It is a social justice advocacy, and they operate under the tagline, See Something, Say Something, Blow the Whistle on Workplace Discrimination and Harassment. She's known as the Discrimination Disruptor. And this is so impressive. She has been in the 40 under 40 for seven years in a row and was the first black president of the National Employment Lawyers Association. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. So congratulations on a really impressive career. Have you yourself been the victim of discrimination is if you had that a a horrible experience in your life especially in your law career yeah throughout um, matriculating different law firms coming up and law firms you definitely um i definitely was subjected to some discrimination and some harassment and so it's funny how um comes full circle and that's what i fight on behalf of workers who suffer the same to this day that is interesting a little ironic uh, what were some of the things that happened? Give us an example. Um, more so, you know, microaggressions and also the idea of uh, promotion opportunities, those who want to challenge your competency. And if you qualify for different positions and roles, not getting hired um, for certain roles that you was more than qualified for. 
as you, um, I was laid off in 2008 um, due to the Great Recession, and I applied for two years, and I never got a job. Um, I think I had maybe two interviews out of that whole time I applied for two years, um, and just never got the opportunity to get hired. There were times when I actually was in law firms, and the the down talking, um, and the, the total disrespect, and some subjects subjected to uh, racial jokes and comments in the workplace. Um, all of that, you know, as you matriculate and try to be a good person and try to build your resume so that you can ultimately become an attorney. Um, and a lot of times I just felt like it came with the territory. This was something I was going to have to live with. Um, until I went to school and actually got out and realized that, you know, there's laws to protect against this. All right. Yes. Well, we need to know the laws. What are, you know, so for example, with microaggressions, how do we know that it goes to the standard of actually breaking the law? Is it a clear definition or is it subjective? How do I know as the boss when to act and when not to act? Great question. I think as a boss internally, you definitely want to act if someone's complaining to you and address it, even if it's just a small investigation internally. Um, having human resources or the boss or immediate supervisors get involved and just kind of see what's going on and address it. That's the part of the see something, say something, because a lot of times it can be resolved internally where you don't have to go through the law. Um, and then when it comes legally, of course, if there's no racial slurs or comment, which a lot of people are now getting smart and not doing, and so some kind of harm to the person, which means you having their actions has resulted in significant harm as far as um, decreasing pay, failure to promote a demotion, a significant title being removed from someone that can affect their career in the future, retaliation, um, and a few other things, um, including harassing, uh, which includes heavy surveillance, um, and some more other things that one do not want to be subjected to in the workplace, but simply bullying and microaggressions is not enough, unfortunately, in the law. Um, but does not mean that the employer should not address it as these um, these concerns are being raised in the workplace because at the end of the day, the, there is a liability issue. Um, and that's what most of the cases boil down to. Did the employer act reasonably once they learn of these things? Right. So, how do we know if it's uh, a true racial microaggression? Say Fred rolls his eyes at you. And that could obviously be racial. It could be Fred's just a jerk and rolls his <laughs> eyes, not even at every woman, but just everyone because he thinks he's better than all of us, right? And he rolls his eyes at the boss. He rolls his eyes at the president. He rolls his eyes at his wife. You know, how do we know if someone's just a jerk or if there's an actual legal issue there? Great question. And that's what I'm on a mission to try to help people understand because there's so many people running and saying discrimination, discrimination when it's just not. You have people that just do not have the know how and the ability to. Um, handle their power. So if I'm giving you a supervisor title, I'm giving you a manager or director title, 
and you now feel like you can treat any and everybody a particular way just because of that authority you now have, that is not discriminatory because you're treating everyone across the board the same way, even your higher ups um, in this particular scenario. So discrimination comes when one particular group or class of individuals are being treated less favorably than another group of people solely based on their class. So that can be your age, gender, sexual orientation, race. And so if you notice that all the black people are being treated this way or all the people over 50 are being treated this way, then that's one thing. But if it's just more so across the board, there's nothing there legally. All right. But even if he's just being a jerk, say he's just being a jerk, can 10 of us get together and uh, the 10 of us should get together and go to HR and say, this guy's a jerk and he's a jerk to all of us. I mean, that's not acceptable either, right? If we act as a group. Internally, yeah, internally, you definitely should get together and speak to HR and let them know what's going on and suggest some kind of training or some kind of plan to get him out of there. Or, you know, in most situations, they start off with training. But in the eyes of the law, there's really no um, protection right now against workplace bullying. All right. What and about it's if that's the owner of the company? What if that's the boss? The boss is the jerk. <laughs> if the boss is a jerk, then it's time for you to consider somewhere else to go. Okay. Honestly. But there is there should still be some kind of HR or some kind of intermediate person or division there to kind of help you uh, communicate that. Right. Right. Well, you know, in in a lot of small businesses, they don't have an HR department yet. The boss is still you know, the guy who writes the checks and calls a payroll company every week to process the checks. And he is, or she is the HR department until, you know, the company's a certain age. So that's true. And in those situations, if they're impacting your money, like you said, they're writing the checks and therefore I'm going to be a jerk and cut your pay. Cause I feel like it. Then there is departments of labor in each um, state where you can now fight for your wages and make sure that you're fairly compensated. But as far as bringing a discrimination or harassment or retaliation claim, if this person is just a jerk and you can't pinpoint it to a protected class, unfortunately, right now, there's no laws out there to allow for something like this. All right. So we're always looking for interesting guests and people who are doing new things. And one of the things that we've had is money sources just for minorities. And we've had you know, organizations designed to do nothing but help minorities. And so from, you know, that perspective, I see the press releases on all of the good stuff and I don't personally experience the bad stuff. Are there still structural barriers preventing minorities from access to money, growing their business? You know, to me, it looks like an entrepreneur, you know, your consumers don't care about that kind of stuff. You know, they, they like your product. They're going to buy from you. You know, that's all that matters. If it's a fair price, I'm going to buy it. I don't care if you're green or I don't care who you sleep with. If you've got a good product at a good price, I'm buying it. So it seems to me like entrepreneurship is a great equalizer. And then I hear bad things that no, there are still structural issues. Where do we stand? What's the reality? 
Um, that's true. You know, consumers definitely going to buy, but you got to realize in most situations, marketing is hard for individuals that's um in entrepreneurship. So those individuals that are going to buy from us is usually our family and friends and those who that we can get our message out to. And so to there is barriers because I cannot get financed. Um, you know, is at a higher rate than my counterpart from a bank, from a, a you know a credit union or something like that. Uh, faster than my counterparts will and therefore I cannot put the money behind messaging whether that be a podcast whether that be you know buying equipment for the podcast doing a billboard being able to spend ten thousand dollars solely on a marketing campaign most people need that for overhead to maintain the bills um so yeah it's definitely you know especially with the lending Wells Fargo stay in the news along with several other financial institutions um that are placed in minority communities but they were refused to support them and um despite having longevity in business i had a daycare work i represented and she had been in business 25 years and she tried to apply for a loan two times to buy a larger building to house her daycare and unfortunately she did not qualify um but she had more than enough revenue and everything else the credit score and everything um she just could not pass a certain portion and she definitely felt like her race played a part in it Tell us about building your own firm. So you described in 2008 having to go for a couple of years with not as many interviews as you had hoped for, but now, you know, you have people working for you and that's an incredible success story. So tell us about your entrepreneurial story of building your own legal practice. When did you get started? Was it out of pure frustration? Tell us the whole story of being an entrepreneur. So, yeah, I, um, in addition to for two years, 2008 to 2010, not actually getting any jobs. I actually took that time to also study hard for the law school entry exam. Got accepted in um, April 2010 to start school in August 2010. And at that point, I have 41 rejection letters to law school uh, between December 2005 all up until around that time in april 2010 and so the idea coming out of school and having these opportunities get rejected over and over again i took the time to apply for two jobs i didn't get those two jobs so i just um, bootstrapped and started my own firm and every time i decided i was going to go work for someone else um i would get these horror stories from my colleagues that i went to law school with about the firm life and what they were suffering from and then of course the clients calling and talking about their workplaces how horrible it was and so i'm like this is just meant for me to continue to stay in this seat um and then within a year i say within a year i was able to get an administrative assistant i was definitely in a brick and mortar within six months of getting licensed and so things were just kind of moved fast um and then i eventually just built a team over the years um and was able to serve clients that i really enjoy working with um in my own style and own grace so um it has been a great journey um of course with entrepreneurship there's hurdles you know originally i tell my friends that say they was jealous of me for having my own and can start my own hours um that they was guaranteed to check every two weeks i wasn't depends on if my client paid their invoice or not if i can pay myself so um luckily all that is now behind us and we got some great clients that pay bills and we got some great uh 
business plans and structure where if they don't, we don't have to serve them anymore. So things like that. Um, but definitely a journey and it has been a great one. Wow. What a fantastic story. And congratulations on that success. You, you totally deserve it. If you would do it all over again, would you want the corporate tower job or would you rather have had the battle that you did and be where you are? I think I would still choose entrepreneurship. I think I just um, started getting coaching and working directly under a mentor that also started their own law firm kind of earlier than I did. Do you have a mentor now, a law firm mentor? Yes, I have a couple of mentors based on each practice area I have. And I also have a marketing um, coach and then a mindset coach. Wow. Okay. Do you have as many coaches as I have lawyers? <laughs> Just <about laughs> I remember one time I uh, was going through a bankruptcy and a divorce. And I think I went through my phone and had 14 different lawyers that I was currently paying, you know, oh wow, my divorce attorney, her divorce attorney, a bankruptcy attorney, a real estate attorney. Then, you know, the corporation that I was running had attorneys that were on my telephone as well and stuff. So I felt like I should have gotten an award from the American legal association, the, <laughs> ABA, the, American, the bar should have sent me a golden gavel for the year or something. Cause <laughs> I supported half of the industry that year myself. Understandable. Uh, why do you need a mindset coach? Your mindset to me seems awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, I think we all need it. We all get um, what they like to call imposter syndrome. Well, we can see success and we can see the things that are happening great in our life, but we always kind of talk ourselves out of the next level. We also got to find something wrong because things feel too good right now. So something bad is just happening to happen. It's bound to happen. And so just those conversations to talk those things out of. And it's so interesting that now all the people who, you know, were in the same class as you and got corporate jobs are jealous of you. And the people who you didn't go to school with because of biases, or working for you or something like that. It's just so interesting how it plays out. Uh, well, first of all, again, congratulations. And second, do you feel like, well, let me, I don't know how to ask this without being rude. What's the key to your success? Is it you're smarter, you're better, you're lucky, you work harder, you positioned yourself better, you had a better strategy. What is it that makes it so now that everyone you went to school with is jealous of you? <laughs> well, thanks for the congratulations. Secondly, I just think it's more so taking things a day at a time and definitely strategizing um, and learning from your failures. I think that's one of the main things you, we can beat ourselves up and sit in and, and soak in for a while. But I started to give myself, you get 24 hours to summer and be sad. And then it's time to come. What did we learn from that? And now go incorporate it so that it will not happen again. What's the remedial measures that we can put in place. So this is not a recurrent accident or, you know, lessons that we're going to have to deal with. All right. Good strategy. And one of the things that I'm afraid of now is the pronouns. 
I don't know that it's fair that I should get in trouble that I don't know your pronoun when your pronoun is a newly made up word or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's, that seems to me to be a little bit unfair. You know, help I agree with you. With you. Uh, I, I agree with you. hundred percent is new to me as well. Uh, but I think as the world evolves, we have to learn to evolve all together, but it is something hard. You know, I was watching the show the other day and somebody referred to someone with themselves as they, and so, you know, it's just different, uh, but it's definitely something that more corporations and employers are allowing people to now put in their signature line. Uh, yeah, I've seen that. I don't have any problems so, yeah. with that. Yeah, so I think stuff in that position, like just trying to acknowledge that we are inclusive and we are diverse. I think that's great. Uh, but I'm with you. I don't know how far we can go in, you know, kind of punishing someone if they incorrectly um, announce your pronoun. Yeah. So I know a person who has transitioned and they sent out an email saying, you know, here's my new name and everything. And I a hundred percent respect that. That totally is cool. Uh, I don't have any problem with it, but that person is now a she, you know, so it's, it makes sense. You know, I can understand that. I don't know that if someone, then they, they say that they're a Z or something. Yeah. I just, yeah, what yeah it's, it's so many different changes because, like you say, you start off with the pronoun, and now it's this um chromosome thing, and it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, you know, I'm just an average white guy who just doesn't, <laughs> I, I just want to be right and not offend people and not get in trouble and and just be nice to everybody, you know. And sometimes uh, I feel like it. it's hard to do that, that the rules are changing faster than I can learn the new rules. I agree. I agree. hundred uh, percent. So I'm glad that you agree with me. That makes me feel a lot better that I'm not crazy. <laughs> What's the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur for you? Not a lawyer, an entrepreneur. If you had to fire someone or something like that. Yeah. You, that comes with the territory, hiring and firing, knowing when, you know, someone is no longer serving you in the capacity that you need to be served. Um, and then I think the, honestly, I always tell people the hardest part is really finding motivated people that, um, really want to push your vision and your passion versus people that just really want a job and want a paycheck. Um, and so because it's not a big fortune 500 company where you can hide in the mix and just come in and do enough to get by and get a check every other week, um, you kind of, it's a little intimate setting. And so, you know, when your drive is not there and you're not doing the things you need to do, um, the person that's the owner actually witnessed that. And unfortunately after developing relationships and having people around for so long, it's really hard to be able to now terminate that person, ask that person to leave or come up with a mutual agreement that it's time for you to exit. Um, so that's always hard. And then also just putting, I think when I was advertised as the hardest part is putting on that CEO cap. Cause like you said, not necessarily the lawyer, but as an entrepreneur, but a lot of times I know for myself as a lawyer, it's like, I just stumbled upon owning my own law firm. That wasn't the plan. Um, and since I do, I kind of focus on the lawyer role and not necessarily like this is your baby. This is your role. Um, and you have to now make those hard decisions of hiring and firing and what's a fair pay rate and what's a should we be giving out bonuses every year if people have not performed, you know, things like that. 
Um, and then also just want to see books every day. Who wants to look at the financials all day every day? That's another hard thing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, Chiquita, it's an amazing story, and I'm really impressed with all the things you've accomplished, and you've given us some great advice on building a service business. If, God forbid, we need your assistance as an attorney, how do we find out more follow-on-line? We haven't really talked about your brand name yet enough. Let's do that really fast. Um, the Whisper, uh, I, I Blow the Whistle Law, or just the brand name. Talk to us more about that and where that idea come from and the brand behind that. So Blow the Whistle Law came around the George Floyd movement. Um, I actually, well, yeah, around the movement time with his death, I was actually watching it as we all was, was repeatedly on television. The same image kept going of this officer knee on his neck. But I was sitting there watching his colleagues do absolutely nothing. Um, a few of them was engaging with the crowd, trying to keep the crowd down and quiet. But no one took the time to kind of poke this guy in the shoulder or whisper in his ear, okay, enough is enough. Um, and unfortunately, they all was impacted by the actions of their colleagues. And that included them all now losing their job, ultimately going to trial and doing some jail time. Versus someone being bold enough and actually speaking up in that moment and say, hey, enough is enough, guy. Like, at least let's put him in the back of the police car or something. Like, just going along to get along, uh, we have to learn to be, it's a more of an accountability movement. And not everything deserves to go to court and become a lawsuit. But if we speak up and challenge our co-workers in the moment and address their wrongdoing, I think we'll have better work cultures for all. Um, and so that's what that came about. I just really wish some one of them would have had the guts to stand up and say, you know, chill out, pause, that's enough. Um, let's move this out of the view of the crowd, whatever situation may be that could have possibly saved this man's life. Um, so it was more, it's more so accountability movement again, so that people can learn to speak up. If I'm in a kitchen with you and we're passing and you said something inappropriate, if I address you in that moment, I didn't, I didn't like how you said that, that made me feel, you know, less than, or I don't feel comfortable with you speaking to me like that. And we do more of that, then we'll have less frivolous lawsuits in court. How do we find out more again? What's the URL one more time? Uh, at Blow the Whistle Law on all social platforms at Blow the Whistle Law and then you can always find me at www.shakitahalljackson.com and that's a hyphen between Hall and Jackson shakitahalljackson.com Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a great story. We are out of time but back tomorrow. Be safe everyone. Go make a million dollars. Bye now. Bye now.